Amen. Grab a seat. Well, we got about three more weeks counting today in the book of Daniel, and uh, I'm sad to, to wrap it up, but it's been an incredible journey. This is probably, I, I say something like this every week, but this is probably one of the most interesting chapters. <laughs> I, I, I keep thinking we hit the, the crescendo of the most interesting material in the book, and then I, I read the next chapter, and I'm like, wow, that's crazy. Okay, so chapter 10, I mean, I, re, I read it on Monday morning. I guess I'd read it before, but I just, I read it on Monday morning. I was like, holy cow, that is really interesting. And so it's been such a, an honor this week to just be able to saturate myself in this passage and all uh, that, that comes with it. Uh, you know, if we are honest, if, if all of humanity is honest, I think all humans would admit that reality is more than physicality and that it's more than just simply what is measurable, right? The reality, when I say reality, it's more than just what we can see, what we can sense, what we can touch, that there is reality beyond our senses' ability to comprehend. Would you agree? Okay, if in this instant I was able to fly back the curtain or, or pull off the curtain to the unseen realm, the unseen dimension of reality, I'm glad the kids are in here, by the way, this morning. This is going to be really interesting, I think, for the kids to hear. Uh, I remember being like a little kid, and I love hearing about this kind of stuff, so I'm glad you guys are here. Welcome. Uh, if you could pull back the curtain on the unseen realm and, and, and see reality as it is, you would actually go catatonic. I'm not kidding. It's exactly what would happen. You, you would literally, it would short circuit your system. You, it would be so overwhelming to you. It would be so much that your senses would, would literally crash. How, how do you know that, Samuel? Because that's exactly what happens in our text. Daniel sees the unseen realm for a minute and he's face down in the mud. It's, it's so, guys, Reality is so much bigger than we can possibly understand in our limited faculties, in our limited human bodies. Here's what you would see. If I could, if I could pull back the curtain on the unseen realm, here's some of the things you would see. You would see a vast array of spiritual beings constantly involved in the doings of human life at every level of the socioeconomic strata and the geopolitical scene. You would see spiritual forces working in government places at the highest, most executive branches. You would see it. Oh, Sam's getting weird. This is getting wacky. Okay, watch out. No, this is just what the Bible says. This is what you would see. And here's what else you would see. You would see conflict, cosmic conflict that never ceases. You would see skirmishes and proxy wars between fallen angelic beings and God's support staff constantly, day and night. That's what you would see. It would fry your brain. It would, you would, your head would explode if you saw how much stuff is going on in the unseen realm. You would see evil being restrained constantly by God's agents. By, by God's, if you will, God's staff. The reality is, is that the, the universe consists of much more than embodied humans. Okay, the universe has many beings. And in those beings, there are different levels of authority. 
the universe really could be broken, is broken into two families, two system families, the family of God and the family of Satan. And every creature falls into one of those two categories. And it's too late for the angels. The fallen angels have already, they're, they're already locked in. There's no repentance for them. So the war is really centered around humans because humans are the last ones that, that are still uh, able to leave one family and go into another one. And the gospel is this, that Jesus came in behind enemy lines, parachute dropped in behind enemy lines by becoming a man, and he cut off the supply lines to the kingdom of darkness, and then restarted an entirely new family by himself becoming the seed of resurrection. So we have a whole new family system now that is at war with the opposite uh, of, of that family system. Two families. This is the gospel. Okay, Ephesians, where am I, where am I getting all this? Well, first of all, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, and we'll, we'll come back here later, but let me just read this. You, you know the passage. It says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, we don't wrestle in the physical dimension. We wrestle against, he lists all these things off, rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. So what Paul is saying is he's saying that there's all of these authorities, these cosmic powers that are ruling over the system of this world, this system of evil, ruled by the prince of the power of the air, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Heavenly places doesn't necessarily mean somewhere up floating. It means in the midst of us in a dimension we can't see or access. Heavenly spaces, heavenly places. So what we realize is that what we see is only part of it. There's much more going on. Now, I, I was reading recently, and you guys know this because I keep referencing it. Uh, I, I've been reading Lord of the Rings again, and, uh, and it's so good. And I came across this little nugget in there that, that just doesn't come through in the movies. You know, the best little tidbits you find in the books are the things that they didn't put in the Hollywood movies. And you remember Strider, the main character who ends up becoming the king, you know, at the end in the, in the, in the final book? Well, when we first meet Strider, he's this really mysterious person, right? And, and they, they, they call him Strider because they don't know his name. And what we find in the, in the book is that there's a lot of backstory to this character. We find that he is part of a race of men called the Dunedain, okay? Is anybody in here nerdy enough to know what I'm talking? Okay, Grant, you're like, mm, Dunedain, yeah. Okay, the Dunedain, okay? And, and here's what we find about the Dunedain. Actually, let me just read you the quote. Um, Frodo, he, he grows up his whole life in the Shire. He's just in this green, safe haven. He doesn't know anything about the evils of the world. He doesn't understand how much darkness there is around him. He thinks that the Shire is just this safe place by accident. And what he's going to find is he's going to find, actually, it's not an accident at all. Here's what Strider says to Frodo at one point. He says, lonely men we are. He's talking about the Dunedain. Lonely men are we, rangers of the wild hunters, but hunters ever the servants of the enemy, for they are found in many places, not in Mordor only. If Gondor, Baromir, has been a steward tower, we have played another part. Many evil things, are that your, many evil things there are that your strong walls and bright swords do not stay. Listen, he says, you know little of the lands beyond your bounds. Peace and freedom, do you say? The north, would have, the north would have known them little but for us. For 
would, it's so hard to read, CS, or uh, whatever his name is, Tolkien, fear, <laughs> I'm, I'm like, can I get the NLT version of this, please? <laughs> can I get an NIV, Lord of the Rings? Okay. okay, fear would have destroyed them, but when dark things come from the house, uh, the houseless hills or creep from sunless woods, they fly from us. What roads would any dare to tread? What safety would there be in quiet lands or in the homes of simple men at night? Listen, if the Dunedain were asleep or were all gone into the grave. So if you're able to catch this, what he's cluing Frodo in is that the reason the Shire has had so much peace is because the Dunedain, these men, Strider, have been fighting in the shadows to keep it that way. There's been constant conflict around this, this beautiful patch of green. That these men were, were fighting day and night. And the reason I bring that up, because sometimes we think that what we see is all there is. But the reality is there is a heavenly conflict behind the curtain that we don't often see. And that's what our text is really going to show us this morning. What does this have to do with Daniel chapter 10? Well, as I've alluded to, Daniel chapter 10 is the peeling back of the curtain to see the powers of heaven, and to see the power of prayer. I think this text is intended to bring us to a place of, of great humility and, and clarity, yet dependency and greater fervency in the way that we pray. I think sometimes when we see how dangerous reality actually is, the way in which we cling to God becomes much more intense. I think that's what this text does for us. So let's just dive right in. Enough introduction. I'll let the text unpack itself. Um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to kind of just un, un, It's very much narrative, okay? This is very much a narrative. Let's start in verse 1 of chapter 10. And the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true and it was a great conflict. Note those terms, those words. It was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. Okay, so verse 1 is going to set up not only chapter 10, but it's going to set up the entire rest of the book of Daniel. Chapter 10, 11, and 12 is one literary unit. And verse 1 here is the introduction to that literary unit. So what we're going to see today is really the narrative backdrop for the prophecy that we're going to dig into next week. And we're going to learn some things here in verse 1 that are important. First of all, we're going to learn the timing of when this stuff is happening. Now, if you remember and if you've been tracking with us through the book of Daniel, uh, the first six books is all narrative and the last six are mostly prophetic visions. And the visions take place all scattered throughout all the narrative. So we always have to stop and ask, well, when did this happen? Well, the author tells us that this happened in the third year of Cyrus, king of what? Persia. What does that tell us? Who's in control right now? Not Babylon, okay? Remember, Babylon was overtaken at one point when Daniel was an old man by Persia. Uh, and Cyrus, King Cyrus led the Persian army to conquer the Babylonian army. And this is three years into the new administration of the Persian Empire. Okay, that tells us that this is about two years after chapter 9. If you remember the 70 weeks we looked at recently. About two years after chapter 9. And it's about one year after Daniel in the lion's den. Any of you kiddos know the story of Daniel in the lion's den? Yeah? You guys know that story? Okay, well, this is a year after that. Okay, great. Uh, glad we're tracking. Okay, Daniel's an old man. He, he's in his mid-80s. He's grown up his entire life as an exile. He started as a young Jewish teenager, ripped out of his homeland when Babylon pulled Israel away into the exile. And so, so we get a, a sense of the timeline. Now, we also get a sense of what is happening at the time. And you, it's important that you understand this. 
What is happening at the particular time that this vision is going to take place is that the uh, repatriation is the word we're going to use. The repatriation of the Jews has begun. You know what repatriation means? It means God is, or, uh, Cyrus um, is literally taking the Jews and saying, you can go back to your homeland. It's what they've been waiting for, right? The 70 years are up. And Cyrus says, go ahead and go home. In fact, not only can you go home if you're a Jew and you want to, he's like, I'm, we're literally going to fund a building project for you to go home and rebuild your temple and your wall. And we read all about that in the book of Ezra, chapter one, right? So Cyrus has commissioned the repatriation of the Jews. And you might ask the question, why would Cyrus do that? And there's two answers to that. There's a, a heaven-facing and an earth-facing, okay? From a heaven-facing perspective, because God made sure he did it, okay? The earth-facing is Cyrus was in the business of putting the gods back where they came from because he thought that was a better way to rule. See, the Babylonians, their methodology was, let's pull the gods out of their temples, let's bring them into our temple, and then we'll kind of mix them all together into one witch's brew. The Persians thought differently. They thought, no, let's put the gods back in their geographical locations. Remember, these are polytheists, right? Persians are poly. They believe in all these different gods. So they, let's put them back. Let's make them happy. Let's let them rebuild their temple, Cyrus thinks, and then we'll have an ally. We can, we can really, uh, you know, count on the Jews in, the, in, in Jerusalem. So that's why he sends them back. We also learn here what this vision is concerning. It was concerning, note it in, in verse one, it was concerning a great conflict. It says, and the word was true and it was a great conflict. This could be and probably should be translated literally, the word was about a great conflict. So what we're going to look at this week and next week is literally about a great conflict conflict, both on he in heaven and on earth. This chapter is about war. It's about spiritual warfare. So that's, 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 you know, why I opened up with this kind of dark, broody, you know, thing about demons and, and spiritual, because this text is about cosmic warfare. It's about what's happening in the unseen realm, in the heavens, and how that interfaces with what God's doing in the earth. So keep that Keep that in mind. So verse two, in those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. So Daniel is here as an 85-year-old man, roughly. He's fasting. He's doing a partial fast. He's fasting from delicacies. Okay, remember, Daniel's a wealthy man. He's a man of privilege. He's a statesman. He's a successful man. He's fasting from delicacies, so no pleasurable eating, no joyful drinking, and no topical moisturizing, okay? <laughs> he, he, he doesn't put any oil on his skin. And remember, this is an arid, dry, Middle Eastern climate. And so he's, he's, uh, he's feeling a little crispy, okay? Okay. Uh, and, and hungry. He's, he's dried out, okay? That's, that's kind of the, the picture here. He's been doing it for three weeks, right? And we need to ask the question, why is Daniel fasting? What, what's, why is he mourning? What's bothering him? What is he petitioning the Lord for? Why is he taking this humble, broken, contrite posture? What's going on? Well, we can kind of piece it together when we simply look at what was happening at the time that this vision happens, and there's two reasons if you want to jot them down. The first reason, number one, is that 
is the underwhelming amount of the Jews that were willing to go home and rebuild the city. The underwhelming amount of Jews. See, Cyrus said, any Jews that want to go home and be repatriated back to your homeland, rebuild the temple, continue on with worship, go ahead. And what we find in the book of Ezra is that only 42,000 went. And you say, well, that sounds like pretty good. Well, it's pretty small compared to the population of Jews in the exile at this point. So I think this is bothering Daniel because essentially his people are not walking in the freedom that God has afforded them. He's opened up a door for them to go home and and they don't want to go. Now, why don't they want to go? Well, because Jerusalem is hostile and it's in rubble. There's no infrastructure. Have you guys ever visited a third world country where there's no infrastructure? It's very hard. It's very, disease, sewage flowing through the streets. There's no garbage pickup. There's no sanity. There's no uh, safety. There's no policemen. There's no military. I mean, Jerusalem at this point in this period is the Wild West. And so while Cyrus is saying, hey, you guys can go home and rebuild your temple, most of the Jews are thinking, man, I like it in Persia. I like it here in Babylon. I've established myself here. I have roots here. I'm comfortable here. I'm significant here. And man, Persia's got an infrastructure, right? Babylon's got an infrastructure. I'm integrated here. So I think this is actually really bothering Daniel. And I think that's one of the main reasons why he's in a a place of mourning because his people are not responding in faith to the door that God has opened by commissioning Cyrus to say, you guys can go home. By the way, the world will always seem more comfortable than the mission of God. It will always seem more comfortable than the mission of God. But listen, there will never be a place more peaceful than doing the work of God. You got to be careful, man, because we get comfortable. We really do. You know, the greatest enemy of discipleship is not sin, it's security. It's not just immoralities, it's everyday trivialities. Okay, it's not just the things that we know are bad, it's the things that we think are good that often hang us up from truly becoming followers of Christ. You remember in Luke 17, or actually it was Luke chapter 9, multiple occasions where people came to Jesus and said, I want to follow you. And Jesus says, okay, let's go. And they they say things like this, well, let me go bury my dad. In other words, let me go make sure I get my inheritance. What does Jesus say to that? Let Let the dead bury their dead. What are you worried about dead things for? Come follow me. Another one says, hey, let me go say farewell to my family. Jesus is like, you're missing it. You know, some of the most sobering words in the entire New Testament are in Luke chapter 17, three words. You know what they are? Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's, what's what's that? What's talking about? Lot's wife is leaving Sodom because God's about to fry it. And she she just, her heart was still there, man. And so she just just takes a glance back at the world. She's like, I just miss Sodom. And she turns into a pillar of salt, becomes an eternal parable of loving the place that you live too much. Now, God loves us to have things. He just doesn't want things to have us, right? He wants us to embed. We learned that in Jeremiah 29. He wants us to embed in our communities. He wants us to to plant roots. But when it comes time to go do his work, we got to hold it all open-handed. And the Jews weren't willing to do that. They were too comfortable. I love how John Piper says, the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, it's apple pie. 
It's the things that we really like and that there's nothing morally wrong with that oftentimes get their tentacles and their barbs in us to where when Christ actually calls us into his mission and his purpose to do something, we can't do it because we're just a little too comfortable. Okay, it's not a gospel of anti-comfort. But we should be so enraptured in God and what he's doing that when he says, hey, go rebuild my temple, that we say, sure, I'm ready. Let's go. Let's do it. So thus, I think the sanctity of Daniel's chosen discomfort. I think Daniel is saying, I'm not going to be comfortable right now because my people are in disobedience. They're being unfaithful and they need to go. And so I'm going to petition God that he would move and intervene and get our people up and moving. There's another reason I think he's fasting, and that's the opposition of the local. Uh, the opposition of the locals led to a stall in the work. By locals, I mean the people that were still in the land of Jerusalem. If you read the book of Ezra, you'll see that uh, as soon as they start work, an opposition comes. Like within days, the opposition begins, and it stalled the work. And I think this reminds us of a, a repeated error that we make often as believers, right? That we think, uh, we assume that hardship should never accompany sonship. We assume that if God's doing something, then it should be easy. I think the Jews are like, well, God commissioned it and it's hard, so maybe we're not really in God's will, so let's stop the work. Grace is not earned by work, but grace often accompanies work, Okay? The gods, or that, um, that sounded really like, I was going to say something really heretical. Uh, what did I write down here? I just like, sometimes I look at my notes, I'm like, you idiot, what were you saying? I'm just going to skip that line. Yeah, I was like, man, I thought that was going to be a good preaching point. Okay. Anyways. So Daniel is disturbed and he's confused by this response. And so he's fasting, he's petitioning the Lord and that's why he is not putting lotion on. Okay, uh, verse, <laughs> verse four. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, okay, that flows through Babylon. And what does that tell us? It tells us Daniel's still in Babylon. He didn't go home. And we don't know exactly why, and it's kind of pointless to guess. He was an old guy, after all. Uh, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen. So picture this. Daniel is, I don't know, maybe having a prayer meeting on the river. I'm not sure. He's with some of his friends on the Tigris. He looks up, and he begins to see a vision of a man. And we're going to see the description of the man. And if you can, you, you get a brownie point, <clears throat> if you can see what vision this sounds like, okay, as we read it. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. You know, Uphaz, right? You guys, you have Uphaz belt, right? You guys are, no. I, I'm only making a joke because like every commentator is like, we don't know what Uphaz is. So, like, yeah, like, I literally tried to find this. Like, what's Uphaz? Like, nobody knows. Okay, so it's just kind of funny to me. Uh, with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His, that's also fun to say. His body was like beryl, which is a translucent kind of a radiant substance. His face like the appearance of lightning. His eyes like flaming torches. His arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze. And the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. That's the kind of voice that when it speaks, you feel it right here, right? Like the sound of the waves crashing against rocks. So here, Daniel looks up, this old prophet, he looks up and he sees this otherworldly being 
whose essence is purity and pure nuclear glory, and who's speaking like the ocean's raging fury. And he turns around and his friends are gone. <laughs> They're running, okay? They're running. Now we need to ask this question, who in the world is this figure? And the simple fact of the matter is, is it doesn't actually tell us. But who does it sound like? Have you ever read Revelation chapter 1? It's almost exactly the same description of who John the Apostle sees on the island of Patmos at the beginning of the Revelation. This being with almost the same description, eyes of fire, skin of gold and bronze, this just sort of like nuclear, glorious, powerful being. I can't be certain of this, but I'm pretty sure this is Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ. I'm not going to press that too hard because it's actually not really the point of the passage. But I will tell you this, what Daniel is seeing is he is seeing pure power in the heavenly realm. And guess what happens next? His face hits the mud. And not in like a, oh, let me just like bow down. I mean, like he passes out. Look at verse 7. I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So this is interesting. It's like Daniel's given the eyes to see this figure, and his friends aren't, but they have a sense that there's something terrifying in front of them, so they run away. And Daniel's all alone. It's very much similar to the road to Damascus with Paul when he has his vision of the resurrected Christ. Verse 8, so I was left alone, and I saw this great vision. No strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep. Pow! He's out. And not just because he's old and not just because he's some kind of a wimp, okay? that He falls on his face to the ground. I mean, the, he's so overloaded, overwhelmed. You, you guys ever have a, a computer or a phone where if it gets too hot, it just shuts off? My phone does it. It drives me nuts in the summertime. You know, you set it on the pickup bench and it's in the sun and then you go to pick it up and it's like powering down, okay? That's what's happening to Daniel's poor little old prophet body. He's like melting. He can't handle the glory of this being. He just goes face down on the ground. I'm not exaggerating. It's just, what is this? Okay. His, his operating system overloads. And I think what we're supposed to see here is we're supposed to contrast the frailty of humanity with the ferocity of heaven. Guys, you realize how weak we are compared to the true powers in this world? I read it uh, earlier during worship, but you know, the psalmist reflects on this in Psalm 8, 3. He says, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care about him, yet you've made him a little lower than heavenly beings. And we know in the end, in the eschaton, we're going to judge heavenly beings. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. Why does God do that? Why does God care about humans? You ever think about that? I think the angels think about that all the time. I think they're curious. I think they're like, what's with these guys? Look at them. They're pointing at me. Like, look at this guy. What do you think? What, what do you care about these humans? What is God so interested in humanity? And one of the most stunning features of the gospel for me, even more stunning than the resurrection, is the incarnation, is that God's glory could actually be contained within the hu a human body. 
And you remember, Jesus takes his disciples, three of them, up the mount, and he starts glowing. What's happening there? The glory of God is bursting out and seen just for, just for a moment. I think we should ask the question, why is Daniel beholding this vision? I think the answer is that God gives glimpses of ultimate reality to those who will be responsible for steering others through great diversity. Let me say that again. I believe God gives glimpses of ultimate reality to those who are responsible for steering others through great adversity. Isaiah chapter 6 has a similar vision, doesn't he? He sees the Son of God high and lifted up. The seraphim are shouting to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. And then what happens? He's sent. He's commissioned. John, the apostle on the island of Patmos, Revelation 1, he sees Christ. He sees the Son of Man. He sees the Father, the Ancient of Days. He sees the whole thing. Why? So he can go encourage the church in times of tribulation. Ezekiel chapter 1, same thing. Ezekiel was an exilic prophet, a contemporary of Daniel. Daniel, obviously. Zechariah, we see this in chapter 3. He sees a vision. Similarly, Moses is brought up on Mount Sinai to see the glory of God. He has to be stuffed in a rock because he would die otherwise, right? Jesus brings Peter, James, and John up the Mount of Transfiguration to peel back the layers and let them see the true essence of his glory. Why? Not so they could go tell everybody right after, but so that years later... When Jesus had ascended, they could encourage the church with that reality. And they do in the epistles. I think Daniel needed to see this so he could encourage the Jews to get to work. To go and walk in the victory of what God had opened for them by Cyrus's decree to go home and build the temple. And as New Testament Christians, we have been given the greatest glimpse of glory imaginable. And that is the reality of the resurrection of Christ. And we ought to encourage people with that. Verse 10, behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. Now, we don't know whose hand this is. A lot of people just assume it's the being that was just described. I don't think it is. I think the being that was just described was just something that he saw for a moment. Then another angel comes and, and, and has more of an embodied state and puts his hand on Daniel. And I can't be certain on that, but that's just my, my guess. Daniel's face down in the mud, so this, this angel comes and puts his hand on him, and it gives Daniel just enough strength to sort of get on his hands and knees. And he said to me, Daniel, man, notice it, greatly loved. You know how many times it says that in the, in, in the book of Daniel? Multiple, multiple times. Daniel, greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you. And stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. So because of the touch of the angel, Daniel's able to sort of hobble himself up on his knees and then get on his feet, but he's, or get on his feet, but he's trembling so much that, that, that he, can, he can barely compose himself. In verse 12, then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, your word, listen, your words have been heard and I have come because of your words. So again, Daniel started praying and fasting three weeks before this and what this angel is saying is three weeks ago, we heard, God heard your prayer and sent me to tell you the answer. Now you should be going, well, what took you so long? And we're gonna find out. Pretty interesting, actually. We'll get there. 
Verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia. <laughs> what does that mean? Google that one. Okay. Uh, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. So let me unpack that for you. Basically, this angel goes, I was on my way. God commissioned me to come tell you that God heard your prayer, that he was going to answer. And I got hung up in a heavenly cosmic conflict for 21 days with the prince of Persia. You ever read a Bible verse like that before? It's pretty interesting stuff, right? What in the world? What do we think of that? Well, let me first say, we need to be careful not to make too much out of this passage. And a lot of books have been written about very, very limited passages like these. So let's be careful. Having said that, there are some things we can learn here, okay? Here's some things. You can jot them down if you want. Here's some things we can learn about this uh, unseen realm from passages like this. First of all, we can see that while the enemy cannot keep God from hearing our prayers, it seems he can delay our hearing the answer to our prayers. I mean, it's exactly what this angel's saying. He's like, I was coming to tell you, and I got hung up in my other duties, haggling with this person called the Prince of Persia. Okay, so that's kind of interesting. Another thing is that spiritual beings, this is important, spiritual beings can influence geopolitical heads of state and carry out God's, or carry out, or, um, yeah, let me just end the sentence there. Um, can I blame my kids for my lack of preparation this morning? Okay, my wife was at the women's retreat. I was up late last night. <laughs> blame my kids. Okay, uh, let me say it again. Spiritual beings can influence geopolitic heads, political heads of state. That's basically what we're saying. Who is this Prince of Persia character? Well, he's certainly, most scholars agree that it's not talking about human here. Most scholars agree that this is probably talking about some kind of a demon that has influence over the state of Persia at the highest levels. Isn't that interesting? Some kind of a patron being over Persia. It's worth saying again, you know, that, that evil is like a franchise. It's like a family system. There is a hierarchy. There is layers. There are proxies within that. Everything from a fallen human being all the way up to the Satan himself, the great dragon, the old serpent, right? And everything in between, there are layers. And apparently, there are forces at work behind empires. That's crazy to me. It's crazy. We see it in the book of Revelation. We see that there's this unholy trinity. There's the false prophet, the antichrist, and the dragon, who's Satan. And, and, and they all work for the dragon. They're all in cahoots with him. It's one evil system. It's one system of evil. You know, when, when Paul talks about the world, he's not talking about dirt. You understand that? When Paul talks about the world, he's talking about the system of evil in which Jesus has come to undermine and ultimately will destroy. It's a system of evil. God loves dirt. God's redeeming dirt. I said it last week. God made dirt, and dirt don't hurt. Okay, Revelation, at the end, we see a new heavens and a new what? Earth. Okay, God's not anti-stuff. God's anti the system of evil. And if you're not in the kingdom of God, you're in the kingdom of evil. And any nation that is not under the kingdom of God is ultimately ruled by the kingdom of evil. And there are forces behind those nations. Is this, is this new to everybody? Is this, is this blowing your mind? Is this crazy? Are you guys okay? Are you good with me? Okay, are we good? Okay. 
you guys are like, you're freaking me out. Okay, sorry. Uh, what did Jesus say to the Pharisees? He said, you're of your father, the devil. What does that tell you? There's a family system of evil. And the gospel is only good news if Jesus comes in and breaks down every single layer of evil. And he does. Quote Lord of the Rings again. <laughs> I'm going to quote, quote Gandalf, actually. Uh, Gandalf says, There are many powers in the world, for good or for evil. Some are greater than I am. Against some I have not yet been measured, but my time is coming. Okay, Tolkien was a, Tolkien was a Christian. He, he, he got this concept, and he, baked it into, and he baked it into his books. There's all of these different layers of authority in, in, this, in this, this kingdom of Middle Earth, right? And, 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 and Gandalf knows that he's in that system somewhere, okay? So the same thing is true here. I don't want to go too far down this rabbit trail, but I'm just going to sneak down it just a little bit. It would seem that there are even assigned geographical domains for certain uh, demonic agencies. That's as far as I'm going to take it. But let me give you one verse. Deuteronomy 32, verse 8. Interesting verse, Deuteronomy 32, verse 8, says, when the highest gave to the nations their inheritance, that's God, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. I don't think that's talking about humans. But the Lord's portion is his people, Israel. Jacob has allotted his heritage. See, that's what made Israel so unique. All the other nations were ultimately ruled by evil principalities and powers, but the theocracy, God's nation, was ruled by who? God. And that's why it's a, a, it's a beginning, a, a type of the kingdom of God that we've now seen more fully realized, more fully developed in Jesus. God has always been in the business of making an alternative kingdom, a new kingdom in this world, and that kingdom is growing and expanding and breaking in. And ultimately, the gospel is the, is the fact that God will at one point completely do away with the system of evil. The kingdom of this world will end. So it would seem like there are demons, perhaps, that are fixed in certain geographical locales. Now, I just, my mind wanders a little bit, and I think, well, isn't it interesting that all of the ancients have all of these stories about divine beings? Temples, worship systems, they seem to have seen all of these things. What, what did they see? Could it, could, it, could it have been fallen angels? Sure, certainly. Why not? We also learn that there is a patron angel assigned to Israel. You know who it is? Michael. Okay, it says that in the text. We'll get there. So God also has his own support staff actively deployed to accomplish his will. The creature's realm may have duality, but God is in his own category. Now, I have to say this because what this could start to sound like is like, so, so like, like in Eastern religion, like there's God and there's, uh, or there's, there's good and there's evil and they're sort of deadlocked in this even 50-50 match. No. That is true of created beings. That is not true of the creator. God is in his own category. But for whatever reason, when God wants to do things in the world, he often tends and prefers to send agency, to send beings, to send people or angels to do his work and to counterbalance the whole fallen realm. It's just how God seems to like to work. Why does God use angels? Couldn't he certainly just do it himself? God seems to like, listen, God seems to like to partner isn't that cool? I mean, does God need us? Does God need angels? But God loves to use beings. He loves to use it for his purposes. 
That's why God made Adam and Eve, to cultivate the garden, to build a civilization of God-glorifying, image-bearing creations. And then we blew it to pieces with sin because evil penetrated into the garden. And now God is redoing it from the inside out. So what was the prince of per- what, what was what was this uh, prince of Persia doing that this angel had to go interact with him? I, I can't be sure, but I, I, it seems like he was probably trying to thwart the plans of God. Cyrus was funding the rebuilding of the temple. My guess is the prince of Persia didn't like that. That's my guess. Okay, now there's some conjecture there. A little side note. Let's move on. Verse 15. By the way, if you're interested in some of this stuff. I would, I would loosely recommend to you a book called The Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser. He's some interesting, he's, he's very sharp, not just some guy on YouTube with sweatpants on. Um, he's very sharp in Hebrew studies. He's got like five million doctorates and has done a lot of really interesting work on some of this stuff. Um, also, the Bible Project has some really good little three-minute videos on some of these things that you could kind of digest and look through. Verse 15. When he, had take, uh, when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. Again, Daniel's on the ground again, okay, for the second time. His physical faculties are just not able to handle this. Have you ever been so stunned by something, by the way, that you literally couldn't speak? You were like so caught off guard by something, you're just like, uh, uh, like that's what's happening. Daniel's just so, he's so overwhelmed by this. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips, And then I opened my mouth and spoke, and I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? That's lowercase l, by the way. For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. This is the third time that this angel has had to touch Daniel specifically to strengthen him. Because he's so weak from this reality that he's interacting with. This event was so shocking to him. Verse 19. And he said, O man, greatly loved. Second time. Second time he said that. Man, greatly loved. Fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. So what do you know? There's another patron fallen angel that apparently is ready to prop up Alexander the Great and bring in the Greek Empire in a couple of hundred years. And so this angel's like, man, I'm just getting done dealing with this guy, and i got to go deal with the next one. Interesting stuff, huh? You know, this makes a lot of sense, by the way, when you think about what seems to be sometimes supernatural ability in, within governmental leaders. I think about Hitler, man. You tell me that guy didn't have demonic power behind him and what they did, and the laser-focused hatred against the Jews. Some kind of a patron demon that was behind Germany in that, in that era. I'll tell you what, I, I believe it for sure. He says, verse 21, but I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. And there's another really interesting phrase right there. This angel is saying, hey, I got to download to you an excerpt from the book of truth. And that's not talking about the Bible. I think it's talking about God's book. <laughs> like there's this book, and then I think these are like excerpts from God's ultimate book. I think that that's talking about God's all-knowing redemptive plan for the universe. This angel's saying, I gotta take and download just a snippet of God's all-knowing, omniscient, sovereign redemptive plan for the universe. I just gotta give it to you. 
And that's what we're going to see in the next chapter next week. We're going to stop there because that's the end of the chapter. And we're going to try to make a little bit of sense of this. I got a little bit, of, little bit of time. So what's the, what's the point here? We got this, this crazy scene, right? Daniel's down at the Tigris River. He's fasting. He's concerned about the, 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 the posture of his people. And all of a sudden, he has this vision of who I think is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And it totally flattens him. And then an angel comes up to him and gives him strength. It sort of interacts with him. What are we supposed to do about it? We get this, the curtain is peeled back for just a moment for Daniel and for us to see beyond our capacities, to see outside of the realm that we often exist in. And what are we supposed to think about this? Here's the key, I think, to our passage. Here's what I think we're supposed to see, if you're going to get one thing. I think the key of our passage this morning is in the contrast. It's the contrast between this weak, old, exhausted, emotionally drained man on his face in the mud and these supreme angelic beings that just have so much power. You see both of them. And I believe we're supposed to contrast them. And now in the system of man, in the system of the earth, we think, well, who gives a rip about the skinny old little prophet? Look at the power of these beings. Who's the one that really has the most power here? The point of this passage is not about angels and and demons. The point of this passage is about the fact that God hears the prayers of his saints. The angel came to tell Daniel, God heard your prayer. And he sent me to tell you that he's heard your prayer. It's incredible. Three times Daniel has to be touched just to stand up, just to have basic operating facilities. He's so weak. He's emotionally drained. He has nothing to contribute militarily, yet his prayers are the most powerful reality in the universe because, listen, because God is the most powerful reality in the universe. And Daniel prays prayers and God hears them. Why? Because God loves Daniel. Isn't that great? You know who God loves more than Daniel? Jesus Christ. You know, if you're a believer in here, you have been fused eternally to Jesus Christ. God hears your prayers. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father right now making intercession between you and the Father. I think we're supposed to contrast this and we're supposed to see that the real power is God and therefore the real power is prayer. I think that there are probably some of you guys in here that can kind of resonate with Daniel's posture a little bit. This isn't some, you know, young, strong, powerful man anymore. I mean, Daniel was a powerful guy in his day. He's emotionally, physically frail. He has limited capacity. He's unable even to speak. He feels unworthy to even interact with these beings. He's he's feeling powerless to change anything, but yet we learn four things that are absolutely true, if you want to write them down, about Daniel and are absolutely true about us. Number one, you are greatly loved. That is what the angels want Daniel to know. Daniel, I know you can't even get off the ground right now because you're so overwhelmed by how powerless you are compared to this being, but you need to know something. You are greatly loved. And you need to hear that this morning as well. You are greatly loved. Your value is not in your effectiveness, 
or your strength, it is in God's affection for you. Did you know that? Do you know that, that, that God didn't make you because he needed you? God didn't make you because he wanted something from you. God didn't make you because he was lonely. God didn't make you because he needed help. God made you to love you. And the love that he has for you is not sourced and your ability to earn it, it's sourced in his own nature. So it can never change. God doesn't love you because of what you do. He loves you because of who you are. Because he made you, he's called you, he loves you if you're his kid. Number two, you are greatly heard. Your prayers are heard. I said, this, I said this a couple weeks ago, it's worth saying it again. Your prayers are heard. God loves to hear and answer your prayers. Daniel needs to hear this. We need to hear this. Three, you're greatly effective. Not only are you greatly loved, not only are you greatly heard, but you are greatly effective. The prayers of Daniel are affecting on a global scale. God is deploying his support staff, his forces. He's deploying his workers to do and answer the prayers of his prophet. And lastly, you are greatly shaped. You know, we look at Daniel, we look at, at how weak and frail he is, and we think, oh man, he, he's it's kind of embarrassing, you know? He, he just can't, can't even pull himself together. It doesn't feel like it, but the believer actually grows up spiritually by winding down physically. I'm 100% convinced of that. I'm convinced that, that the most mature you will ever be in the Lord is when you are the weakest you will ever be in your physical body. It's the craziest thing. And I, as a pastor, I sit at a lot of beds with a lot of people that are about to take their last breath or people that are incredibly sick or incredibly weak. And I never see Jesus more in an individual than when they are completely wrecked physically. We grow into our new life and our next body by growing out of our old life and our old body. The two things happen in parallel. Daniel is an 85-year-old weak man who has never been more godly, who has never been more mature, and never been more able to clearly discern the word and the will of God. It's in our weakness that we actually can take on the feelings of God. Daniel is wrecked by what should be wrecking the Jews, but it's not. He's tuned in to what God is feeling. He's feeling all the feelings. Now, let me just pastorally say as a side note, some things that this text is not saying because I see a lot of stuff in the culture right now, Christian culture, that I think is bizarre and it needs to be checked, okay? This is what the text is not saying. The text is not calling us to obsess over spiritual beings or to try to put them at the center of our theology or our philosophy of ministry. The text is not also calling us to ignore them. But listen, the text in no way is calling us to try to declare victory over them or speak out their name, or anything that some of this crazy theology out there is calling people to do, okay? Don't take that too far. What we need to answer, though, is how do we engage in the spiritual warfare? What are we to do? How are we to engage? One thing that doesn't happen in the text is uh, God doesn't say, Daniel, get up and take on the angels. Speak victory over them, or whatever. And it's not, that's not what he does. What happens? Well, I want to end with Ephesians chapter 6, and we'll be brief here. If you want to go there quickly, Ephesians chapter 6, in verse 10, let me start reading. It says, finally, Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord. Same verbiage, actually, that was used to Daniel. And in the strength of his might, 
you know this text, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Not against the physical bludgeoning of the devil, not against the sickness that the devil's gonna cast on you, not against your sore back, but against the schemes. What do schemes imply? It means that the devil's ultimate concern is to get you to not believe the gospel so you'll perish. Okay, just remember that. And how do I know that? Well, look at what the armor is protecting. Verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now, here's the armor. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. What is that? Believing the gospel, okay? And having put on the breastplate of righteousness. What is that? Believing the gospel, okay? Verse 15, and as shoes, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. What is that? Thank you. Verse 16. Good job. And in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. What is that? Thank you. I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to point it. No, again, if you guys don't listen. Okay. okay. With which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. Uh, don't get too carried away here. Hold on. I'm going to change things on you. And take the helmet of salvation. Wait, wait, wait. What is that? Take the helmet of Believe in the gospel. Believe in the gospel. Okay, that's good. Helmet of salvation. Are you guys noticing that these are all the same things? Shield of faith. Helmet of salvation. It's all believing the gospel. And here's the one active, uh, here's the one active thing we do. Here's the, here's the one thing we do to engage the enemy. The sword of the spirit. Okay, take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is what? The word of God. So what we do to defend against spiritual warfare is we believe the gospel. And what we do to engage in spiritual warfare is we, listen, we preach the gospel. We preach the gospel. Why? Because the gospel is the good news that Jesus, like on Normandy Beach, Jesus has landed and opened up the floodgates and kingdom resources are pouring in and the kingdom of darkness has been undermined. That it's foundation is eroded, its power is taken away, that death is dying, that Jesus is victorious, the resources of the enemy, sin, death, evil, are on their way out. That's the power. Okay, so what do we do to engage in these spiritual We don't try to name demonic angels and we don't come in and try to anoint geographical locations with oil. We come in and we preach the gospel because it's in the gospel that power truly comes. It's the power to transform. Okay, that's what Paul says to do. And I guarantee you, if there was ever a place that had some kind of a geographical demon, it was probably Ephesus. The temple of Artemis, Diana, I believe it was. Okay, this, this place was probably crawling with all kinds of gnarly stuff, but, but what does Paul do? He doesn't come in and start, you know, he doesn't come in and start engaging in, in, in demons. He comes in and he preaches the gospel and people get saved. And that's what we're supposed to do. That's what we're here to do in Grant's Pass. We are here to be heralds of the gospel, to declare the truth of Jesus' victory. And then look at what Paul ends with, verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit. By the way, praying in the spirit doesn't mean mindlessness or floatiness. Praying in the spirit means praying in a submitted, surrendered state to the spirit of God and what he's wanting to do. With all prayer and supplication, to that end, keep alert with perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me that the words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim what? The mystery of the gospel. 
for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. Some years ago, we taught through the book of Acts, and what you see in the book of Acts is you see the kingdom of God exploding across the ancient world, and it's not because they started fighting angels. It's because they planted the flag and the beachhead of gospel proclamation in all the cities, and people started getting saved, and they started getting discipled, and it started to change culture. So our job is the job Jesus gave us, which is the great commission, which is to go into all the world and make disciples. What makes disciples? The gospel. That's what makes disciples. The good news of Jesus' victory. That's the whole deal. That's what we're here to do. That's what we're here to do. So if you remember anything from Daniel chapter 10, I want you to go, wow, there's some crazy stuff out there in ultimate reality that's way too big for me. And then I want you to go, I'm glad God hears my prayers. And I'm going to ask him for the victory. And I'm going to walk in the victory of Christ by believing the gospel and preaching the gospel every day. It's very simple. Amen? Okay, why don't you stand with me and let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that while we have so often have our heads down and the minutia of our daily activities, which are all perfectly good things, working, caring for those that we love, taking care of ourselves, serving, all the things that life consists of, Lord, that while we're doing those things with our heads down, Lord, you are in the heavens, deploying all of the forces of heaven to accomplish the redemptive purposes of heaven, that there is never a moment where we are not being defended by your power and the power of your armies. We we can go a day without even thinking about the fact that there are forces that want to destroy us, but God, you never stop thinking about that. You are a great protector, and above all, you are a great redeemer. I am so thankful that while we have these conversations now, there is soon coming a time or any kind of being that is in opposition to your will will be nothing but a distant memory. That all the layers of your created world, spiritual and physical, will come into conformity with your eternal purposes and will. That the kingdom of God will be fully at hand. And God, while we wait for that, may we go with our banners as ambassadors of the truth, that we plant the gospel and see it take over people's lives as the spirit breaks in. God, give us boldness to declare this message. And Lord, may we never become too comfortable in Babylon. God, may we always be ready when you say the doors open, go. Lord, what doors are you opening for us in this community? What commissions, Lord, what decrees are you opening and giving us favor to go declare the gospel? Lord, would you show us? Would we be responsive? Not so distracted, Lord, with just churchiness and busyness. Lord, give us eyes to see where you're working and faith to trust you as you empower that work, God. Protect this body. Protect this body from the evil one. Lord, protect us with the gospel as we believe it and wrap ourselves in it every day. In Jesus' name, amen.